Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby and today I'm joined by Dr. Yelka Zalatil and Dr. Heather Rogers. Dr. Zalatil is a qualified physician who specialises in studying diabetes and more broadly in how health and medical policy are implemented. She's held many influential roles in public health and health policy in her home country of Slovenia, including as the co-chair of the National Diabetes Plan 2030, and she's advised the European Commission on tackling chronic disease. Meanwhile, Dr. Rogers is a tenured research associate at the Biocruces Bizkaya Health Research Institute in the Basque country in Spain. She trained as a medical psychologist. She studies the implementation of health policy and especially good practice when it comes to mental health, primary care and person-centred care. And she's also served in advisory roles for the European Commission. So, Heather and Yelka, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hello. Good to be with you today. So diabetes and chronic illness on the one hand and psychology and mental health on the other hand, what brings the two of you together? (laughs) Uh, Well, I don't know actually how Heather would say, but for me, it was understanding from both of us that if you explain the people, you know, the truth, they don't change. It's not enough. That we both come at this idea from from different perspectives, Um, maybe Yelka from a more uh, practical, applied physician, clinician perspective, and and I, I come at it from more behavior science with rats and Skinner boxes and 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 the the role of um, context and and <laughs> and how to create change, which is what um, Yelka is speaking to. What does behavior change involve? Knowledge isn't enough. Okay, so let's jump in there. You said when you explain facts to people, they don't change. Is that because they don't get it? Or because they do get it, but in some way, like just getting it is not enough? Both, both. For example, my first life experience was from treating patients with diabetes. And um, I needed some time to realize that coming close to their worlds would help me help them get certain facts about diabetes and how they uh, live in their daily life. And then it became even more so true when I came to these, let's say, more system-wide approaches, because also in the policymaking, let's say, you have people and they, you explain them and sometimes they don't understand you. So this is one one part of the policy making. And uh, on the other hand, it is not only knowledge of information is enough. There are really a plethora of sciences that help uh, us understand why and how people. And I agree with what Yoko said in in that um, when we're producing in academia, um, research studies and findings and takes a long time to get those findings into clinical practice. And I think like Yelka is saying, that how we integrate what we know from the academic literature into daily practice in a sustainable way, and how that information is transformed or, or translated, knowledge transfer, requires different tools, different ideas, different frameworks. And so, so there's, there's a piece that can be more developed. 
Mm. And when you say getting it into clinical practice from research, does that go via policymakers, you know, policy change? Or are we talking about also going directly from the research lab or the results of a trial to clinicians themselves? So in our experience in, in the Basque country, I'm part of a research group that they've spent 20 years doing the work, doing an RCT for health promotion in the primary care family medicine setting in the local health clinics. And the physicians who participated in that RCT saw that it worked. They saw that if we do this, it helps our patients. They change their diet. They increase their exercise. They are able to stop smoking. And this has a benefit on their health. But then when the RCT is done, it doesn't stick because the program hasn't achieved a sustainable change in clinical practice behavior. So from our work in the Basque country, it's very bottom up. And the idea is that this whole body of literature or work that we're working on in a long trajectory of studying not just what health promotion is and does and what the clinicians are doing, but the package around it of how it's implemented in the health system. That's where the policymakers come in because we need changes at multiple levels in order to ensure that these effective interventions get into policy. Right, so changing the behavior of individual clinicians isn't enough. It needs to go via policy to have the impact you want, which makes sense. And that then brings us, of course, to science advice for policy, which is kind of our home turf. So obviously there are there are two steps, I would say at least two steps. The first is to do the research. And the second is to figure out how to convey the results of that to policymakers. And both those steps are a big deal, of course. I mean, lots has been written and said about how to do them, obviously. But we do tend to assume that once step two has been completed, once you've delivered the information to policymakers in the best way that you can, then the responsibility of the scientist ends and the responsibility of the policymaker begins, right? Which implies that whether the results of the research in the end are put into policy, whether they're rolled out across society, in the case of health interventions, I guess, whether they become part of clinical practice in general, that's not on you, the scientists, that's on the policymakers. And what I think you're doing is challenging that perspective. Well, I think you've hit on this big implementation or knowledge transfer gap that that we know that exists. And there's a number of reasons for that. But many times researchers, scientists are working in their labs and they're maybe not equipped with the tools to be able to provide policymakers with the information that they need in the time frame that they need it. So so there's a, a, a set of issues around that. So you mentioned this is where the academic or the, the, the scientist's uh, responsibility ends. The responsibility of the scientist is, is to provide policymakers with the information they need, and that often requires studying whatever you're interested in, in context, so that we understand how other factors relate to the relative success of what I'm doing. And so here's where we have this, this gap in, in what we understand. Yeah, it's really, uh, uh, of course, a complex uh, process if you are a scientist and you don't take the border of delivering the, you know, the, the knowledge, the pure truth to the universe as your final step. But it's really completely different type of approach. And it was um, a relief to me and my uh, colleague who tried to 
after when we really got the document, you know, <clears throat> the National Diabetes Plan. <clears throat> of course, it was the time of celebration for one year or two years because, uh, you know, it was really expected for many decades. But, you know, how, how then you really bring the change on? We have everything that uh, a country could have, but so what? And this so what actually was supported by the thinking of a very wise colleague, uh, also medical doctor, but working at the Ministry of Health. And when she was coming to our meetings, she said, sorry, I don't understand you. Please, can you explain to me what this really uh, means? Uh, how should I act on that? And actually having answers to her questions or the question to my daughter, you know, when I was doing my PhD and she was asking what I'm you know, writing about. And then uh, she was really carefully listening to me. And then she said, and what now? <laughs> yeah. And such uh, questions uh, that actually push you over the limit that you usually uh, work are where the different um, sciences meet. And when we say the science says in medicine, it is only one science. And when medicine becomes one of the many sciences, then you really can come and close what we also call the, the, the gap um, between what should exist and what is really there. And uh, one way to close this is to use the tools and approaches also called implementation science. So just to make sure I'm following, is the idea that the scientists need to do their work better in some way at the start so that the package they present to policymakers can be improved? I don't know. Make it more useful, make it more timely, communicate it more clearly, make the implications more explicit, whatever. Is that what you're getting at? Or is it the idea that all that isn't enough, that the scientist also needs to come back after the initial science advice part is over to help with the implementation part. In other words, like, is the work of the scientist all front-loaded or does it continue all the way through the process? I think it's about process, right? So the science advice isn't over. It's not um, a time-bound. Yeah. True, for sure. It's not actually maybe the same scientist because producing, you know, the answer with the p-value of certain reliability, you know. Also, the scientist himself or herself, we doubt our own research because we have to. We have to put a lot of dilemmas there to, to bring new knowledge. And then suddenly on something that is uncertain to you, you have to say something very concrete now, today, this afternoon, what should be changed or not, and stand behind uh, behind that and how to communicate the uncertainty and still dealing with the fact that you have to make a move because it is not one move against another but it's, it is a move against doing nothing and obviously we there are many many fields in, in, in medicine in, in health and in other sciences where we can simply cannot afford to do nothing anymore so how to deal with that it is actually um, the specific field and where really uh, many sciences meet. And of course, also the, at the policy level, they have to grow another year, let's say, uh, to, to, to really hear um, messages timely and uh, maybe ask the question, I, I, I feel that this might be important, but can you please explain that to me, uh, how, how it may relate to my, to my work? And Yelka, you, Yelka mentioned 
um, something that struck me was how how scientists are trained and and we're trained to think about p values and probability, but it's the probability that our finding is chance. And then, as she mentioned, when we need to communicate the value of findings, there's one issue of doing very, very basic research and that you see much later on the value of that to society, to policymakers. I think that's one one aspect. But just in general, the training and how scientists approach knowledge is that there's always this factor of chance. And later, we may find that we're wrong. So when it comes time to communicate to policymakers, um, to, to take that stand, I think it, what Yelka mentioned, maybe um, scientists aren't trained or could benefit from additional training in, in, in that piece of the communication. But Yelka also mentioned that there's, there's this need for other players to come in with a specialized knowledge base to be able to make sense of, of, of these findings and their value for policy, for society, in order to create the impact that everyone wants. Yeah, it'd be good if you could unpack that a little bit, if you have an example in mind of this transdisciplinary part. Yeah, I mean, we can work uh, on that, of course, um, at the level of a single person with diabetes, of course, when understanding of, uh, you know, what type of questions you can ask that you really get the, the reference point that would be important of to him or her enough so that he or she would really make some changes, let's say, uh, when choosing food or uh, physical activity or something even more complex like um, stress relief. Um, there, of course, the there it is really logical that the medicine in the, the the narrow sense cannot give answers to that, and also medicine studies pathology um, and we are dealing of course here with some uh, usual um, reactions that that people have and there is nothing pathological in that it's very normal that you stick to your habits because this is who you are and who you take yourself for at the certain point in time of course Um, and of course we can also speak maybe a bit uh, broader on that Um, you know that in Europe there is a and an, an approach that supports the, let's say, implementation or the transfer of good practices from one context to another. And then you get what you asked, because then you get medical doctors, then you get nurses, hopefully you get also a psychologist or anthropologist or sociologist who could help you understand the process. But if not, you are completely stuck at the first um, at the first contact because team from one country uh, explains to team from another country what they were doing. And of course, the, the one country that should be the recipient, they say, Yes, yes, they can achieve that uh, result, but it is in their context. Our patients are different or our healthcare system is different and or whatever. Everything is different and it's true because it's a different context. And if we believe in the good practice transfer um, as a source of knowledge, of course, then you have to unpack. There is no p-values anymore in, in this process. And we had have quite a lot of uh, interesting uh, joint actions. So the um, 
the financial mechanisms actually who support collaboration among member states uh, in EU. And we have learned uh, a lot on how clashes among sciences come and bring to uh, another level and another understanding. And and one of the real benefits of those joint actions is bringing together the interdisciplinary work, individuals on the ground doing the implementing, the disciplines from the social sciences, the behavioral sciences, and the the academic knowledge. I can give you an example from our local work where we're working with family practice clinics, so nurses and physicians and even administrative assistants. And they take on a health promotion program. Uh, it's prescribing healthy lifestyles. And, and the center itself determines how this happens in a community setting. And, and Yelka shared with us the differences across countries. But even locally, in one health center located in one neighborhood, it has certain characteristics and a certain patient population that may be very different from a clinic that's 20 minutes away in terms of um, the socioeconomic status of the patients, in terms of uh, the number of chronic diseases that they may face, in terms of um, whether it's a large center or a small center. So there's so many different characteristics. And all of these characteristics are going to influence how successful the intervention is. The intervention itself is how the lifestyle prescribing happens, how we assess diet, exercise, and smoking in order to determine which, not just patients, but people in the community need to change and should be adopting healthier lifestyles. And then also later on down the chain, whether or not these individuals get an actual prescription from their physician or their nurse to change their lifestyles. So in order to understand what's happening and how that intervention is being effective at a population level, you have to study at multiple levels and understand at multiple levels and understand this role of context. What are the barriers and the facilitators to getting physicians and nurses to do the prescribing? This then becomes relevant to policy because what we hear when we engage in this other kind of research that's not about quantifying and probabilities and p-values, but when we sit down and we bring the people who are doing the implementing of the intervention, and we put them around the table, we ask them, what challenges did you have? What helped you succeed? We get all kinds of very useful knowledge about what types of changes are needed in the healthcare system and by policymakers that can influence how healthcare is structured and delivered that can, in this particular case, help people adopt healthy lifestyles and we even get information about the communities and community structures. The idea was that primary care would lead this health promotion effort and team with pharmacies and town halls and um, the sports centers. And the community becomes healthy and, and active. And so we hear also about barriers that exist in the communities that require multi-sectorial approaches. So now we're just not even talking about health policy, but we're talking about how and the education minister might need to incorporate more healthy lifestyle curriculum in elementary uh, education. We may be talking about the housing sector because we find out that um, a number of people in the community lack um, safe and, and adequate housing, and that has a big impact on how they can uh, engage in, in, in exercise and diet. There aren't enough fruit markets around. So the multi-sectoral approach, also the health in all policies, all of this comes with gathering the individuals around the table 
and engaging in the right conversations, in the processes. And, and this involves um, lots of specialized knowledge from lots of different individuals working together for the same aim. Mm -hmm. And Heather was really nicely mentioning the, the knowledge uh, generation of such approaches. And the implementation science has the tools that the usual sciences have. For example, the, one, the first one actually that I got into contact was the way how to report on that. So is it publishable? Hmm? And it is. So actually there are uh, the Squire 2.0 guidelines. Okay, it doesn't really matter. But uh, the point is that there is a framework out there how to report um, on this experience. And then when you go through that uh, guidance, you, you, you clearly understand that you need multidisciplinary team in the sense of other sciences within the team to give the answers. For example, the, the four major questions in these are in this square 2.0 are why did you start so it's about the context but also about the trigger you know something that comes and then potentially veins uh, then what did you really do but not only in the sense you know just give the tablet or pill but uh, you know again usually a complex intervention then what did you find for example, if we speak about identifying barriers or opportunities or whatever, you, you don't you, you need additional tools and approaches how to uh, scientifically uh, soundly come to what the real barriers, for example, were. And then the, the best question that you can really reiterate many, many times and use different facilitatory uh, techniques to come to the answer. What does it mean? What does it really mean? And in reality, there are papers out there uh, published uh, in alignment, of course, with this, uh, with this guidance. And in this sense, you are really not trying to publish because of your uh, career, because I don't know actually what the impact factors are, but you bring the knowledge out there to the community. And maybe fortunately, but young scientists in medicine tend to uh, read a lot still, I hope. And uh, maybe at least in this way, they come uh, with the contact to the, these broad perspectives uh, that you as a scientist in medicine, for example, can take to really achieve the impact if you are really there. Okay, good. That's great. At the start of the conversation, I was a little bit puzzled about this idea of implementation science because you seem to be saying, well, basically the advice you were giving to scientists or science advisors was just get into the details, right? Understand the issues that the patients in this case will face, understand the questions they ask, the setting of the community, the nature of the disease and so on. So that way you can give better advice. And that's fine, you know, but obviously those details are going to be very different when you're giving advice on diabetes versus, I don't know, um, transportation policy or energy use or, or migration policy or something. So then I wanted to understand why you're calling it implementation science because that suggests that there's some more general set of principles or approaches that apply across lots of different settings and different policy areas or at least maybe some principles about how to figure out which details you need to get into in your area am i getting that right yeah yeah i think um that that you've hit the nail on the head um that that implementation science provides um frameworks or, or structure to how we explore these different aspects. And um, Yelka mentioned some questions that can guide 
uh, one tool that I'm familiar with that can help us to structure what we know uh, about context in particular is, is called the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research. And, and a lot of work on, on context is done because when we, when we go into medicine, when we talk about health, we're talking about complex interventions. Uh, a lot of things change. There's a lot of moving parts in this machine. And, and some people want to know what works, what's the critical ingredient that if we transferred it someplace else, this ingredient has to be there and the rest could be adapted. Uh, that's really hard to figure out. Some people would like to know that. Um, other people would like to know this intervention, part of what makes it effective may have to do with everything that's going on around it, the larger machine in which it, this mechanism is set. So what the CIFR does is, on one hand, it talks about the intervention, in our case, this health promotion intervention, and separates it from how that health promotion intervention is carried out or is implemented. And, and those are the strategies used. How do physicians hear about this program? And do they receive feedback on how well they're doing, on how many patients they've counseled or prescribed healthy lifestyles? So there's different strategies that need to be supported, that require resources to be able to carry out. But we know from behavior change that just getting feedback, which we do now all the time with our apps, and we have all kinds of data available on our own behavior. Uh, if we choose to track our exercise, our number of steps, if we're tracking our, our diet, we can scan what we eat, we can calculate calories. All of this feedback can help us to contemplate do I need to change my behavior? The screen time, right? This morning, the screen time notification popped up on my phone. I ignored it, but I could choose to take a look and see how many hours I spent on my phone and make a decision for myself. Do I want to change my behavior based on that feedback? Feedback is one critical implementation strategy that we find helps whoever our target is to, to change their, their, their behavior through nudging, through reminders. Um, there's all kinds of different strategies. The CIFR then takes the what, the implementation strategy, and separates it from the how, because the how may make your intervention ineffective. And it's not the intervention that's ineffective, it's how we're implementing it. Uh, the other thing that the CIFR does is it asks us to consider different levels of context. So in our example of the health promotion intervention, we're talking about different family medicine clinics or local healthcare facilities. And, and, and that's the, the inner setting of, of where this is being carried out. And then the outer setting might be the communities or the healthcare system. And when we're studying the intervention, it's important to keep the high level. So um, Yelka mentioned, what is the ultimate meaning behind this? We, we, we should always be reminding ourselves of this to be able to communicate to others, to other stakeholders, but also for our own work and our own research to remind us and to ground us in what it is that we're trying to achieve downstream with the work that we're doing so that we capture the right information, the right metrics, so that we're measuring the right things. And some of those right things have to do with quantifying the effectiveness of the intervention with p-values. And sometimes they also have to do with more qualitative approaches. So focus groups and interviews to understand why the intervention is working, how it's working, and in particular, what are the contextual factors that help it to work or explain why it doesn't work in particular settings. 
And uh, one of the um, really important messages uh, I would just read it from uh, from Heather. She was speaking about giving or receiving feedback, meaningful feedback, of course, or let's say maybe reflection on what's going on. Um, for example, in, in Slovenia, one part of our national diabetes plan in last decade was also to install the national centers for diabetic retinopathy, you know, to screen all, all people with diabetes timely to check if there's something wrong with their eyes, let's say, broadly speaking. Um, and we got everything right, you know, we got the financing, nurses, centers, but the people are not attending those centers. So the give me give us more nurses, more doctors and more money may not be the real essence of why uh, such program in some other countries, for example, works. So it's really a, a perfect ex example when <clears throat> if you if you think uh, simply, it is not logical why the people are not there. And on the other hand, do we have a lot of blindness? No. People in parallel to this system, they come to the treatment they need. But it is much less regulated and so on. But I mean, if only we have the reflection of what is going on. So when we install the finances in this case and uh, the, the teams, and if we wouldn't know, we, if we wouldn't count how many patients are there, then we wouldn't know that we have a problem. And this... Um, let's say feedback uh, or uh, do th something that uh, you believe based on what you know um, might give positive results do that then try it uh, study it analyze it and then think again if you can do it differently it is a simple pdsa cycle but um, in medicine it is not a simple pdsa cycle it is very complex uh, process to be understood that you can afford to not be right from the first idea, you know, your brilliant idea might not prove right. So it really, uh, um, only this, so feedback and reflection and monitoring and changing what is not working could really bring the new systems um, in place um, at the site of uh, individual um, healthcare teams or uh, actually at any level in, in the system. And uh, a couple of things going off of what, what Yelka mentioned. So one, um, this, I, this field of implementation science draws on quality improvement and that we want to do what we're doing better. And in order to do that, we need to know what it is that we're doing, be able to describe it and be able to collect the right information, data, about how well we're doing and, and what other factors might influence it. So on, on one hand, I wanted to emphasize the quality improvement aspects of the processes. And then on the other hand, when you have a large, uh, like a diabetes plan, there's so many, we're talking about the moving parts and, and, and all of these mechanisms. When we're unpacking that plan, it's, it's about behavior changes from a number of individuals at a number of levels. And it's the role of policy and policymakers to support those changes. Ultimately, from one perspective, one could argue that the ultimate role of a policymaker is to provide the governance, to provide the adequate financing and resources and, and the adequate training or personnel to be able to carry out, uh, for instance, a national diabetes plan. So in order to get those pieces in place, as Yelka was mentioning, we need to have a very clear understanding 
of all of those moving parts. So it's not just a snapshot, but this is something that's dynamic and these parts are moving and they're constantly in function. So if we're just taking snapshots um, and not videos of what's happening real time, then it's very difficult to, to come to the, the right conclusions. So, so, so we need processes. We need to think about uh, policy recommendations as dynamic and changing and, and systemic. And, and that requires a, a slight paradigm shift in, in thinking. I just wonder about the uh, political practicality of this. Because you say, I mean, very persuasively, you say, look, we need to try things out. We need to gather feedback and then come back and think about what's working and what needs changing and, and adapt our approach. And that strikes me as obviously very sensible, but also as the kind of thing that can be politically very difficult, especially in high profile policy areas where a politician might have had to stake quite a lot politically on, on taking the action that they're taking or taking any action at all, or indeed when people have to make a decision very fast. Yeah, for, for the decisions they have to make this afternoon, of course, if we are already too late usually. But uh, when they decide on, let's say, uh, uh, to, to, to take a model disease to try, I don't know, some changes in one part of the healthcare system, then if you have um, such processes almost okay for one disease and not for another, then this disease uh, might be chosen more frequently, you know, and then you improve in the one field um, really, you know, with with the most fast forward ideas. And of course, then potentially all system um, is uh, brought uh, to, 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 to the higher level uh, based on this experience. And coming back and uh, reevaluating the um, policy interventions, of course, it's also, um, it seems unimaginable but they actually always are getting reflections from all kinds of different stakeholders. If it could be taken as part of the grow of the policy interventions and not just being attacked by, any, by political enemies, then it would be maybe also good for the souls and hearts of those at, at, at policy level um, um, seats because it's a really tough one. And sometimes you need to believe again uh, that People are good and their intentions are generally good so that they that you go and you, you carry with you all those decisions that you have to take. Uh, so it could be seen as a, um, as a very positive and uh, also relieving uh, approach uh, also at the policy level. And I think, to Toby, you know, your question about... Um... You know, do, do politicians know this? I, I, I think that what we're talking about resonates with policymakers. I think it's 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 a struggle to bring the right players to the table. There's often competing interests and, and competing. Um, it, so 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 in, there has to be a desire for for the change. And and and, and let's come together to to come around the table to, to make this work. And it's, and it's going to take discussion. Um, as we're talking about kind of knowing and doing are, are two different things, but the importance of, of having the right enablers in place so that it's possible. Um, Gielka was talking about the, the, time, the timeliness of, of the decisions and, and perhaps we don't have the time to, to go through all of the steps. Um, but the, the key message might be to have those mechanisms in place 
for the monitoring, for the discussion, so that the environment is facilitating this, these types of conversations and, and, and these types of approaches. Um, because it, it's a reality that it won't be possible to, to go through and to have these processes in place for, for all uh, national diabetes plans or, or all components of, 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 of aspects of policy. But for those where they can be implemented, but they can be put into place, it, it seems like that, that could only benefit reaching the ultimate impact. Yeah, I mean, fair enough, but it's not just about the timing. It's about, well, I was going to say political resistance, but that sounds... Okay, so it's, I mean, it's not just stupid policymakers being politically motivated and not being able to see past the ends of their own noses and all that. I mean, there might also be a principle at work, which is one we actually hear about quite a lot in, in discussions of evidence-informed policy, which is the division of responsibility between the decision-maker and the advisor. And I think that sits differently from where you're situating it, or at least people might feel it, it sits differently, right? So we have a good example of disagreement here. Yelka, you said maybe the key responsibility of the policymaker is to provide adequate governance and funding to let things happen. And I think some policymakers might push it back against that and say, no, no, our role is much more active. It's to take all the inputs, which includes scientific evidence, but also everything else, and to weigh them up and to decide how to respond to them, and then I guess to, to actually do it. So what I'm asking is, why is all this implementation stuff the domain of the scientist at all, rather than the policymaker? Or, to ask the question in a different way, I suppose, is there any value, in your view, in trying to maintain that separation between the scientist informing and the policymaker disposing, to try and keep those roles distinct and independent from each other? Um Perhaps um, scientists and, and policymakers, we belong to different groups, different camps. Um, we have different expectations. Maybe those expectations aren't reasonable and perhaps sometimes they're left unsaid. So Toby, you know, as you just said, maybe from, from the role of the scientist, there's, there's an, an expectation um, that policymakers are, are providing certain results um, leadership or, or governance, and, and perhaps the policymakers have a different view. So, so we're coming to the same table, um, not having policy advice stop at a document or at a, a phone call or have it be very time bound, having this continuous process of uh, relationship building, putting oneself in the other's shoes, really understanding the pressures that, that both groups are under. Um, that's where we have transformative change in this larger system that is science advice and, and policy making with, with the academic researchers perhaps um, in that uh, pipeline a, a, as well. But um, the role of the science advisor ultimately and, and the politician are, are both to help society to reach its maximal potential, whatever the society wants. So balancing the needs and, and wants of, of different stakeholders is a struggle, but being able to monitor how well that works out, under what conditions is it working out well, when I've done this this day, when I did this the other day, and it's not just days, but um, trying to somehow track and, and use principles of quality improvement, of, of processes, of understanding 
conditions that lead to certain outcomes. I think one of the things that my my own training in in, in behavior science, I mentioned at the beginning of our session of, of rats and Skinner boxes, a Skinner box um, has a, a lever. And when the rat presses the lever, they get sued and there's a light in the box. And so you're learning all kinds of principles about behavior and, and behavior change and why the rat chooses to, to behave in a certain way to press the lever to get reinforcement to get a food pellet. Um, all of this, how it happens in the lab under controlled conditions. And, and the beauty of, of life is that we're complex. The systems are complex. We live in complex societies. We're not rats. But these principles of how we learn why we, we, we behave in the ways that we do, we're much more influenced by our context than we'd like to think. I know that's beyond our discussion today about policy and about policy making, but that's exactly why it's important to create the conditions in, in, in the conditions of how we give science advice, in the conditions for, for how we're making policy, to create enabling environments for, for the citizens. And, and to use, to the best of our knowledge, the latest findings and, and, and the latest frameworks to help organize that knowledge that may change tomorrow because this is dynamic. But um, through processes, through dynamic realization, systemic thinking, the, the, the ultimate principle would be to create the enabling environments needed for such advice, science advice to be successful and policy making to be successful. And uh, in addition to science advice, of course, it would be nice to have also the policy advice to scientists what their problems in reality are. For example, <clears throat> from the perspective of medical doctor, getting the eyes checked is a problem if it's not done timely. On the other hand, if we take this example, the, 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 the real problem of the let's say decision maker in this case is we have everything in place, but people are not there. Why? And of course, we will not discuss anymore, you know, fundus cameras and so on and uh, ge genetics, uh, whatever is involved in all this stuff. But also um, we'll, we'll approach the problem from the perspective of how and why it is generated, why it still persists after so many years and we will take a look from the micro meso macro level and we will use many different type of sciences that we for example in this case it will be the social marketing approach and we'll also at the end the result will be uh, the set of interventions for micro meso and macro level because this problem is generated in this, all those layers, and also, of course, needs uh, interventions on all levels, uh, on all these levels, and some of them will be will have to be tested, because we will have great ideas. Great ideas. It is very, it is a danger <laughs> when somebody says, you know, this is my great idea. Then you can really start start to worry up for this project. So we will test the ideas. And um, then we will uh, come to the understanding of how actually this um, simple patient pathway is a complex, uh, complex organism that also has this time sequence. As, as we will study it, it will also change. And it will be, I think, perfect example also on how to 
understand in, in depth um, the relationships and if we correct them to the better. Uh, for this occasion, it will be also better uh, for some other uh, clinical or other um, problems. All right. I want to ask you both, finally, something that might be a bit outside your area, but do have a shot at it if you'd like to. So I understand that public health is a very complex area, but you also have on your side some clear methodologies to, as it were, tame that complexity, to try and factor out confounding variables and so on. You know, you can figure out whether a particular intervention is having a meaningful effect uh, by like distilling out cause and effect with a large cohort and double-blind methodology and so on. So I'm told by, by people who are much cleverer than me that this doesn't work for some other big challenges, that you have these big, complex, so-called wicked problems like global climate or, you know, biodiversity in a whole ecosystem or whatever. And in these areas, you don't see the results of your interventions directly. And no matter what you do, you, you kind of can't see them in principle. So this process you're describing of feedback and review and improvement isn't going to work so well when you're looking at climate change, say, because... Well, A, you can't wait decades for feedback and B, the system is so big and so complex and internally opaque to some degree or unpredictable that you can't disentangle one intervention from all the other factors that are at play. So, I mean, I think these are very hard challenges and it's not a strike against you if you don't have the solution. But I just wonder whether you think for these kinds of challenges, does implementation science still have something to offer? Sure. Um, so in this case, we usually, so we have to take then the proxies. So we have to believe that reducing this and that will further along the decades reduce something else. Uh, and uh, to, 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 to have the proxies that are close enough that they become tangible. And then we everything have uh, this... Uh, uh, frameworks or approaches, and there are, of course, many more, uh, could be used to, to really better understand. So why is this uh, happening as it is? So why somebody buys a car like that and not the other one? It's not only about the price of that money or about the price of the fuel, but it's re really, really a complex decision uh, within the person. And it is affected, for example, through the system tax taxes or whatever. So the general approaches, of course, are um, suitable for that. But how good are we in defining the proxies? That's another question. And I also, um, so one thing that struck me was that you mentioned um, factor out the complexities. And I think it's exactly the opposite. I think we want to factor in the complexities. We need to recognize Right. Um, I, I think that that's that's what uh, implementation science can help us do is to provide structure to the complexities. And, and there are many, many, I think, in this conversation today, we talked only about a few of the very simple structures or frameworks that might exist to help us to structure our knowledge. But um, but but we are talking about uh, structures that onlay onto our experience. So can this be applied to more macro level global problems? This being frameworks and, and ways of thinking? Yes, I, I think that that is a yes, because the difference in complexity, looking at a national diabetes plan, and as Yelka mentioned, micro, meso, macro level uh, pieces and of the machinery moving together, 
let's take it up a level globally, uh, climate change, uh, antimicrobial resistance be another great example. Yes, I think implementation science thinking does have ways, tools to help us to think differently about the problem. And maybe that's its strength. Perhaps um, taking a new perspective that helps us to factor in the complexity and the dynamic natures of the problem can help lead to innovative solutions that may have been ignored previously. And, and, and that could be the, the primary strength of implementation science, that in this field, now there are a number of doctoral programs uh, training students to be implementation scientists. That is their, their, their doctorate. Um, there are also a number of, of consultants. So it's a job to be the middleman to help take the work that's going on in the laboratories and in controlled and, and, and semi-controlled uh, situations to these bigger scale, uh, scaling up, uh, transferring of good practices. So there's a, a particular niche for uh, implementation consultants. Then there are other, in Canada, for instance, they're doing work within implementation science specifically related to policy or knowledge transfer. All of these words are, are used to define it. So I think the field has many promising aspects that are being developed and can help to think differently about problems that can lead to some potentially promising solutions that might otherwise um, have been ignored without having all of these different players at the table from different disciplines, all thinking critically and carefully about the problem and, and about the, the information, the, the data, the indicators that are needed to, to track it and improve it. Lovely. I think obviously there is a rich seam of discussion and we've only just scratched the surface here, not just in terms of policy areas, but also this whole idea of implementation science in general. So I hope we can come back to this topic in future episodes. Um, but also in the meantime, maybe you will have planted some seeds among our audience today that will grow into that next generation you were talking about of implementation scientists. Um, so thank you very much indeed for being our guides through this, Dr. Heather Rogers and Dr. Yelka Zalatil. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here today. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>